0: MSW Media.
1: This week, Donald Trump, during an interview with George Stephanopoulos, admitted that he would accept aid from foreign nations if they approached him in the future. This stunning admission drew sharp criticism from lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, as well as an announcement from the chair of the Federal Election Commission that accepting foreign aid in connection with an election is against the law. Trump's admission raises important questions. How will our elections be protected from foreign influence in the future? And are our laws adequately keeping foreign influence out of our electoral process? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So Patty is running a little late uh, today. She'll be joining us about midway through so let me bring in my friend Asha Rangappa. You know her as a CNN legal and national security analyst, but she was an FBI counterintelligence agent for many years. Uh, she is also a professor at Yale University, uh, and she is a frequent guest and sometimes guest host of our podcast. Welcome back, Asha. Thanks for coming on again.
0: Thanks for having me, Renato. love being on.
1: So obviously uh President Trump made some comments that I think troubled a lot of people. Um but I imagine that your reaction was different than a lot of us in other words that you you thought of it differently given the experience you have um doing counterintelligence work at the FBI. I'm curious what what your perspective was, your first reaction was.
0: Well, I mean my first reaction was I you know, I I can't believe this is happening. As usual, you know, you you imagine that uh, we we've, we've settled certain things, and apparently this one is now uh, up for debate. But you know, apart from the fact that our federal election laws are quite clear on on banning any kind of foreign contributions to elections, you know, I thought about the the policy reasons behind it, um, as you and I have discussed before when, when we've discussed legal issues and why it is that we don't want uh, foreign governments to be able to provide anything of value to candidates. And there's two reasons. The first is that countries don't have friends, they have interests. And so when a government is passing any kind of assistance, financial information, otherwise to help a particular candidate, it's probably because they expect something in return and probably in the form of some kind of policy changes that are going to benefit them. And in the case of hostile adversaries like Russia or North Korea or Iran, that becomes incredibly problematic because the reason that we have our policies that we do is because they are acting against the interests of the United States or against our values and principles. The other reason, and this goes to more of a counterintelligence reason, is that typically a foreign government, when they are doing this, is not going to be overt about it. And probably a campaign, as we've seen already in 2016, is also not going to advertise the fact that they are getting help from a foreign country, which means that after the fact, if that candidate assumes office, they are then beholden to that government. And you know, that government has leverage over the person. And the American people will actually never really know, are they acting fully in the interest of the United States? Or did some something happen behind the scenes where this person is, is really acting to further another country's interest? And both of those things are a huge problem.
1: Yeah, I have to say, my initial reaction was that it was, it seemed to me almost a signal to foreign uh, adversaries, that, he would welcome their help, and that they should get involved. I mean that seemed to me to be the undertone there is that well, there's nothing really wrong with it. It's not a big deal and that seemed to me to give a green light to adversaries i mean would you be worried about that about foreign powers looking uh at at that yeah
0: absolutely no and and you know our our c n n colleague Sam Viigre has said on t v that he's basically put a for sale sign on his forehead, and um you know it's like you know, bring me your bids and I'll decide which one is the best one. And remember, it's not simply that he's saying, I am willing to accept assistance. He is in effect saying, I am willing to offer you the the powers that I have in the realm of foreign affairs and foreign policy and the ways that it can benefit you in exchange for your assistance. And I don't think people are seeing it that way, but that would... Why else would a government help? I mean, do they care otherwise? You know, I mean, they don't want to go golfing with him. They they want something in return. And that is what he is signaling to them, that he is willing to play ball with them in exchange for them to help. And Renato, let's not forget, you and I both know this, he's desperate. He wow. has to win. If he does not win, he faces certain prosecution either at the federal level or at the state level and he cannot there's nothing that's going to help him because right now the only thing that is shielding him from prosecution is the fact that he is the president of the United States and there's a there's a policy uh, against indicting a sitting president and that will no longer be there so he he has to cheat he has to do anything in his power if he wants to protect himself that's what's going on
1: You know, it's interesting. I published a column talking about that in in Politico uh, about sort of what potential liability Trump has after he leaves office and whether or not he'd be prosecuted. And I I will tell you, I've gotten a lot of feedback from members of Congress, uh, people in and around politics on that. uh, People asking me a lot of questions about that subject. It's interesting because I think to a lot of folks, I've heard some some people tell me, like, there's no way that that would actually happen. You know, a new president is going to want to move on uh, from prosecuting Trump. And I appreciate the sentiment, and I am not a politician, so I'm not, what do I know as to what a new president would would want or would not want to do? But I would say that career prosecutors, if they were given that file, would, would prosecute. And so I think that Certainly if I represented Trump, I would tell him that I would be concerned about it. And I think a new president would be in a position where they certainly want to, wouldn't want to look like they were protecting Trump. I don't think any Democrat who got elected would want to say, well, I've directed the Justice Department not to prosecute Donald Trump. I don't think they would; any of them would do that. And so— the question would be what would independent let's say career folks or or even or maybe leadership if they weren't recused from it wh- whether or not they would uh recommend prosecution and i think the vast majority would. And so and as you point out, of course, there's other potential liability as well at the state level and potentially from, you know, individual offices like the Southern District of New York. So serious uh, potential concern for Trump. So I agree with you that there's a lot on the line. And it's interesting, by the way, for me to see that that's now become something discussed out in the open in the presidential race, because we saw obviously Kamala Harris um, talked about how she believes that Trump would be prosecuted today. Pete Buttigieg, uh, uh said that uh, he would let his Justice Department make that decision. But the point is, um, you know, it is now something that I think people are discussing as if, well, yeah, this is a real possibility. Right. And
0: I think it's also important to note that as far as the obstruction of justice charges that happen after he became president, you know, there's sort of this Nixon precedent where he was pardoned for any crimes committed while he was in office. And, you know, even if you took that as some kind of courtesy or precedent or something like that, the campaign finance violation happened before he became president. And I'm I'm convinced that there may be other crimes that they discover in the course of this, um, either at the state or federal level, that preceded uh, his becoming president or even preceded his campaign, mm-hmm. in which case, you know, there's no courtesy that you give to somebody simply because they end up getting elected, particularly if that, you know, the way they became elected was itself questionable um, for for anything they've ever done in their life before that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I really don't see him, and particularly with just the sheer amount of wrongdoing that he's engaged in uh getting getting the same but is it just a different time than it was at Watergate.
1: Well I think there also look there was a lot of criticism of Gerald Ford at the time uh for doing what he did. And in fact there was a lot of discussion is in speculation about whether or not there was some sort of quid pro quo because Gerald Ford didn't have to be the selection for vice president. He was and perhaps Nixon had that conversation with him. Now that's Gerald Ford's... is uh, former President Ford has said otherwise that you know that was he did that because it was personal relationship with Nixon. I believe was what he said the reasoning was because I went back and looked at that recently. But nonetheless, um, it is. Um, To me, something that, uh, you know, was it was a political move made by President Ford at that time. But it's not at all the case and not necessarily the case that a a Democratic president would do that. I think they would not, uh, because I think that the political fallout would presumably be pretty significant for them. I think the more likely scenario might be that Trump would leave office office early and have a President Pence uh, pardon him, I think. You know, that's something I mentioned in my column, and I do think that's a potential scenario. And
0: and, and I think that would be a, actually a, I'm, I'm not going to say smart, but like, you know, that would be a rational move for him. Because I think another difference between Trump and Nixon is Nixon stepped down. He resigned. And in some ways in doing that, he, he accepted some form of responsibility. So, you know, the fact that he was, you know, the fact that he was pardoned, there was a, a certain culpability that was acknowledged. Trump is, if he doesn't, if he does not resign, he is going to fight tooth and nail. I bet he'll contest the next election if he loses. You know, so I, I think it's going to be much messier. He's never going to accept responsibility. So in many ways, you know, pursuing the charge would be really the only way to vindicate justice.
1: So I, have I, got to say, you know, with with Trump's comments, another thing that came to mind. For me, as a former uh, federal prosecutor is well and somebody who still I practice the law quite a bit and am constantly evaluating, do I want to put my client on the stand uh, uh do I want to let my client testify it certainly i think it was was exhibit one uh, for why you would not want him testifying if you represent donald trump uh because that was a mess um uh, you know, of a of an answer there's not he, there's clearly much better things that he could say he didn't need to say what he did. Um And, there you know, between that and some of his other answers, obviously, he's also, during the same interview with uh, George Stephanopoulos, he questioned uh, whether or not uh, Don McGahn—he said that Don McGahn was lying and Don McGahn was, you know, making it all up to uh, make himself look like a better lawyer or something. Um, you know, it seems to me that um, one of the enduring questions uh, is going to be why Trump was not— compelled to testify seems to me like something that has a great historical impact. Um, And I, I wonder between now and the election, if we're not going to hear more things because Trump's going to have debates with an opponent, for example, at some point in time, if we're not going to hear him say other things that are going to make our jaws drop about some of his own potential legal liability.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, basically in this interview, he admitted that he ordered the code red. <laughs> it was like it was like his Colonel Jessup moment, um, and I think I think he will have more Colonel Jessup moments. And I think this goes to another piece of this is that when he does that, unfortunately, you know. Republicans are left in a situation where they then have to justify it or or rationalize it or create this new alternative universe where what he said makes total sense. Um, and that ends up ultimately confusing the public and um, adding to the disinformation. And we've seen that just in this last week. We've had Republicans come on and say, no, that's actually not against the law. It's only against the law, you know, uh you could do it with from an ally and not from an adversary or it's not, or only if it's bad or not good or I don't even know. I mean, they're they're coming up with all kinds of qualifiers when, in fact, the law is you cannot receive anything of value from a foreign national or foreign government in, in the election. Um, this is not hard, but, you know, it's become now a muddy area, unfortunately for us.
1: Yeah, I you know it was in I was very interested to see how Republicans were going to respond to this. At first some of them were ducking interviews and you know I give credit to some of our colleagues at CNN and elsewhere that were um like Manu Raju who are pestering um, lawmakers and asking them these questions, uh, uh, you know, going from lawmaker to lawmaker asking the questions, and I would say you could put the res- the responses into four buckets, and I think the last two buckets are buckets that I want to explore heavily with you. So the first bucket I think uh, is this is completely wrong, um, and so on. I think uh, Mitt Romney, for example, fits into that bucket. Then I would say then there's a bucket that is. That offers some sort of qualifier. Well, it's different if it's from an ally, like you said. I think you've kind of done away with that. I mean, it doesn't matter. And frankly, we don't want to have people in. Re- First of all, we don't want to have foreign powers, uh, um, you know, influencing our government, uh, whether they're friendly or not. We don't want to have a competition between our allies, whether it's the UK or the Israelis or the Australians or someone else. Uh, having some, you know, um, you know, having some influence in our elections. So I don't think any of us want any of that. So, but then I'd say the the, the response is, I think there's a couple other responses that I I think are worth teasing out because this is where things are starting to move. This is what I keep seeing. One is, well, the uh, y- you know, yes, that this is wrong, but Hillary Clinton and her campaign. Um, received foreign uh, Oppo research intel, and they're the real wrongdoers. We heard that from Lindsey Graham and others. And then a more sophisticated version of that that we're hearing now from people like Andrew McCarthy. In I'll put this as bucket four is well, in 2016, you know, the Trump administration may have. You know, to the extent, or you know, um, they they just weren't. They they may have done whatever they did, but they were they were not smart enough to launder it through a law firm, which is what Hillary Clinton and her campaign did. And so, what we're really saying is that Oppo Research, as the Andrew McCarthy's column out today, the right wing former uh, federal prosecutor, constantly, uh, I'd say, defends Trump. What he would, what he, um, what what he essentially says is, well. There's there's ways you can do it that are legal if you launder it through law firms like Hillary Clinton did, and um, and uh, you know essentially with all that's going on is Trump didn't know to say well you know there's a right way and a wrong way to do it and know the law and this is really a trick question, so I have my own thoughts about it but I'm curious what are yours because those are the two kind of recent uh, moves that I've seen made to justify Trump's comments.
0: My thought is that this is so dumb. Like I can't, I, I, I you know, you go, the, the problem is, is that they present these arguments and then you end up in this vortex of crazy, of having to explain why these things are different. Let's just go back to basics. Okay. Russia, a foreign power, a hostile foreign adversary, broke into the Democratic National Committee server and stole. they hacked and uh, stole private emails. Um, this in and of itself just broke the law and this was being done by a foreign state. They then took those emails, weaponized it and offered it to a campaign um, in in order to help influence that election. Now, we can talk all day about whether oppo research or, you know, should should candidates have them? I mean, let's just ban all of that. I don't care. I don't think I, I think oppo research just really encourages mudslinging and all kinds of bad things in our elections. And I'd be happy to see it go. But let's let's keep the focus on what we are talking about. We are not talking about opposition research. We are talking about foreign governments engaging in cyber crimes and violations of our sovereignty to to steal things from us and then weaponize it back against other Americans. I would love to see Andrew McCarthy Andrew McCarthy who has never read the Mueller report uh, explain how the Hillary Clinton situation fits into that framework. It doesn't. And if he wants to create some other law or whatever to, you know, make what Hillary did illegal, let's go for it. I don't really care. But it just it is not relevant to the conversation that we're having. It's stupid.
1: You're, uh, you give them. I'm more sorry, that I'm answers.
0: getting really angry. But like no, it's <laughs>
1: great. I think that's why you uh, you and I are a, a, a great uh, duo talking about this because I'm you know trying to take their argument seriously seriously and being analytical about it, and you're like, um, you know, this is total BS, and it is. I, I think it's right. It's purely a distraction. Um, what I would say um, about it is that. From my perspective, like legally it's just wrong as well. In other words, what happened in Clinton, Hillary Clinton's campaign is she, her campaign th- law firm uh, hired – or the DNC's law firm, I think it was, uh, um, Perkins Coie, hired a foreign vendor. I mean that's really what um, Christopher Steele was. You hired a foreigner to do something for you. That's fine. I mean Cambridge Analytica was hired – um, right. by uh, the the Trump campaign to do things. And they're obviously in the UK. And, you know, so you can hire people in the UK to do whatever you want. I mean, um, but the, that's not a contribution. In fact, that's you paying someone for a service. And so it's just, it just has nothing to is a legal matter very cleanly. It has absolutely nothing to do with this. And so he should know better. And. Uh, You know, but, you know, it's being done essentially to confuse the issue.
0: Right. And that's why I started out with the the policy reasons, the theory behind banning those contributions. And that is simply not implicated in these foreign vendor paying for service things. There may be other harms that come out of that and, and we can address those. But there there is no reasonable, you know, harm. That that will result in the chief executive of the United States being beholden to a foreign state when he has the power to affect policies that may benefit that state because he you know is indebted to them or is under their uh, you know sort of damocles that they have uh, because of assistance. Um, it's just a completely different you know level of of. Influence and in it in the what I just described is what our framers were worried about when they drafted the Constitution. Um, that kind of the influence of a foreign state of a foreign power um, in being able to you know direct how we conduct our affairs.
1: Yeah, I think that what our the founders really clearly wanted was a nation that was free of foreign entanglement and foreign interference, and in fact that was very. Um, much on the minds of the founders of this country. And I really appreciated, you know, the chairman of the Federal Election Commission um, issued a statement um, about this this week, and kudos to her for doing so. Um, And she mentioned that in there, and since then I've, you know, looked into that and read some of the quotes, and, you know, people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were very focused on that issue because they were worried, understandably, I think, that, you know, just leaving England, uh, coming out from England, you had a, a fledgling con- uh, country that uh, they would be uh, playing games. And I think now I will say, Joshua, one concern I have is that even though the law is what it is, even if everyone's aware of this, that it's it we are we are going to have foreign influence in every single one of our elections going forward.
0: You mean because because uh, Trump and and. All these Republicans have signaled that they're open for business,
1: and also that well, also that it worked in 2016 to some extent, right? It certainly had an impact on our election of some kind. We can't measure it, but we know it did. And I just think if I, you know, the Russians and Chinese and other go- governments are going to be looking at this and be like, "Well, you can really disrupt their elections fairly cheaply," so we might as well do that.
0: Yeah, and I think this has gotten me thinking, Renato, and I'd be interested to hear your your thoughts on this. Is that You know, their assumption would be based in part on we can offer this kind of assistance. And let's say it's not direct foreign contribution, uh, direct financial contributions, but in in the form of dirt on on a particular opponent. You know, that is resting on the premise that that dirt will then be covered and amplified by the media, uh, by social media. So, you know, in many ways, we're relying on these candidates to pledge and to, to be good faith actors. And what we're learning is that many of them are not willing to do that. But there are other variables in this equation that can mitigate the power that that assistance could have. And so I've been thinking about, you know, how could the media, for example, create some kind of internal ethical standard on how they will treat uh, dirt that comes up You know, the way they did with the Hillary Clinton emails. I mean, if you remember in 2016, there was no attention given to the fact that this was stolen and that the intelligence community had actually determined at that point that that it was Russia that had hacked it. All they focused on was the content, which, frankly, there wasn't anything that bad or you know crazy in it it was just uh the fact that there was just so much of it and there was some internal you know uh backstabbing within the dn within the dnc um you know so i'm wondering like are there are there other places are there other things that the people could do where they choose to not engage with the you know mudslinging or things that come up of, of questionable provenance mm-hmm. um, because then you it loses its power right like it's only powerful to the extent at, to which it is covered and to which people care um and and how do we inoculate your, ourselves in these other ways if our own candidates are refusing to do it that's my question
1: yeah i would say well you know you talked about the media um the media coming to a, a an agreement on that i think it's a lot harder than it used to be. In other words, it used to be the case that there was three television networks. Every town had a newspaper or two. And if the net networks decided amongst themselves, well, we're not going to cover this story or that story for national security reasons or we don't want to embarrass somebody or whatever, it wouldn't happen. But now what I there's so many different news outlets and so many different ways to get information. Um, that I think it's it really doesn't matter what um, the media does. For a long time, the media tried not to report the details of the SEAL dossier, uh, and everyone knows now and who's very informed and powerful. Everyone's you know has a sense of what that is or knows what that is. And similarly with WikiLeaks, um, I cannot t- tell you how many people since 2016 that I've spoken to, just people who I run into my ordinary day life and I'm talking to about the election, who will talk about, oh, did you read all this stuff on WikiLeaks? They actually went in and looked at that stuff because it was the sort of thing that on the Internet was getting, some of it was becoming viral and there's all sorts of conspiracy theories and so on. And, um, you know, even though the media didn't get into a lot of the details, uh, people did.
2: And the other thing is, just look at the story that BuzzFeed broke about Michael Cohen being told a lie by President Trump, and then you have every other news outlet chasing BuzzFeed, and of course, then Mueller has to respond to that. It's surreal.
0: Well, and there, I think though, to Renato, to your point, and and I agree with what you both just said that the, the you know the, the pace of our news cycle and uh, information overload is such that the media can't afford to not go after a story or just let it lie. They can't choose how they approach it. You know, what if the first question when something comes up, when it's released is how did you obtain that information, you know, Mm -hmm. to the campaign that got it? Like how, what, what is your source for that? Can we assume that that it it came from a foreign government? I mean, if you put the pressure on like that to make them put the burden on the candidate and, and to, you know, almost kind of like a indirect shaming, but also that, look, this value of this information, um, it is, you know, the source of it is also relevant here because that could implicate your own fitness for the candidacy of this office. Um, if, if, you know, this is doing, if you're doing this in cahoots with some uh, foreign government, they can choose how to, to approach it and, and maybe push the questions more towards the candidates who are putting this stuff out. Um, you know what I'm saying? Or like with WikiLeaks, which may not at the time have been declared as kind of a intelligence arm of the Russian government. But if imagine if every time WikiLeaks was mentioned, they were referred to as the intelligence arm of the Russian government. Mm-hmm. Um, people start would become more skeptical of the information that they are putting out um, because you're disclosing that they have that affiliation. Just a thought. I'm just looking at other ways because I feel like we're just, you know, you're right. I think that, you know, candidates are open for business and foreign governments are going to take advantage of that.
1: I know the problem that I see with that, though, Asha, is that campaigns will never do it themselves directly. They're just going to always use some intermediary. So you're going to have the, you know, people against Sanders or Warren, or whatever, whoever the kid is, That'll do it. Or it'll be some shadowy group, you know, whether it's vote veterans for truth or it'll be some totally separate WikiLeaks at the time was just some totally separate actor. Right. So I think that unfortunately that's going to be the case that, you know, and and what happens if it's the Daily Caller uh, that or whatever that's releasing this. And we don't, they won't say where they got it from. A source is provided mm-hmm. this to us that we've confirmed, whatever. So I think that's going to be hard. I, you know, I, I don't – unfortunately, it's very hard to put the genie back in the bottle. It's one of these things where I think there are things that we could do to help this. I think one thing, for example, the, you know, the press has done a nice job when Trump makes certain addresses of fact-checking them in real time. That does help. But it doesn't completely erase the fact that the president of the United States is giving a speech that has many lies in it. And I think the reality is all the things we're talking about can help. But I don't think that they're ever going to erase or fix the problem.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe uh, one thing that could be I I agree with you uh, is just to keep the focus on this is that how bad would any kind of opposition dirt have to be to overcome everything bad we already know about Donald Trump. Uh, You know, and if you think, if you frame it like that, like, do we, you know, is, are we going to get information that a single candidate is uh, someone who commits sexual assault, financial crimes, lies about everything, um, has, you know, profited from the presidency, has been in contact with foreign powers secretly and won't reveal what he says to them. I mean, you would have to really get a lot of dirt on somebody to overcome Hmm. that. And I think we've totally lost sight of that perspective. It's almost like we need a website where we like everything known about Donald Trump and then as dirt comes out from other candidates, like, you know,
1: that would be quite uh, a website. That would be (laughs) I
2: I did want to make sure we got to a legal question that a a listener had about uh, going back to the uh, you know prosecution of these kinds of what we what we all think to be as crimes a uh, could or will Mueller's assertion of not being able to put a monetary value on any info offered end up as a precedent based excuse for anyone else accused of or willfully encouraging and doing
1: this i think that's a really smart question i, I wonder yeah i wonder if a if that's a lawyer is asking that question, we have. A, I will say this: i have going to. I went to a legal conference last week, and all these lawyers listened to this podcast. So it's, it's a lot of lawyers who came up to me who listened. So that could be from a lawyer. What I would say is um, that just to give, get everyone up to speed, and I think we discussed this a few weeks ago with Bob Bauer, the former White House Counsel, that what really drove Mueller's decision not to charge Donald Trump Jr. was two things. One was the the fact that this. The dirt that he was offered, had, Mueller found you could not put a monetary value on that, or it was difficult to do that. And it was that's interesting. What I would say is I think it's the right call as to that particular uh, case. case.
0: Set of facts, exactly. Yeah,
1: in other words, because there was not even actual information that we know of. In other words, it, it wasn't like they later showed up on a later date, and showed them the information, or there was a discussion that was very specific about what they had and what it would have been like. It was very ephemeral. It may not have even existed. It was too. Um, it was. It was. It was too. Um, it was too vague. Uh, what I would say is that said, it's, it, it does not suggest to me that something that does not have a very. sort of a well-defined monetary value cannot be a contribution. In other words, to give an example that's, I think, a well-known one, um, you know, I think many people are familiar with Rod Bogoyevich. He went to prison, and the the thing that he went to prison for was selling a Senate seat. And Senate seats are not things you can buy at Walmart or, um, you know, at Kohl's or something, Um, but... Um, the court actually did, and in his sentencing, they put a monetary value on it for purposes of that fraud, and it's not the only case that's, that's, that's happened. I saw, it, I personally witnessed a case where a, a deputy U.S. marshal had, had given away secrets to the mob, and the secrets were the, the location of an informant, and that was found to have some value. So certainly it could happen, but I, I do think, and that's why this is such a smart question, I do think that any other um, prosecutor would have to grapple with Mueller's reasoning and would look at and cite Mueller's reasoning on the subject. And I would also say another issue that Mueller raised that I I think is worth mentioning, before I throw it over to you, Asha, is another key driving factor is that in order to be criminally liable for a campaign finance violation, it has to be a willful uh, 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 offense. So in other words— It has to be that you knew Knowing and willful. Yes. So and the willful one is the hard one because it means that you that you have you knew that this was violating the law. And in the case of Donald Trump Jr., I had thought years before the Mueller report came out that that was going to be a hurdle. But one thing that I think is interesting about Trump's comments is that Trump's comment and the severe reaction to that comment and him walking it back. Means that if he ended up doing anything along these lines in 2020, he's proved the willfulness requirement e- exactly. exactly. Yeah,
0: he has the mental state, which would be the w- one of the big high bars.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: Uh, especially now that the statement has come out from you know the FEC and 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 everything. Um, I would only add, you know, I actually have the pages of the Mueller report open in front of me, and I think you're you're right that in some ways this was case specific. Um, and I think uh, what Trump has said might, might actually work against him. And that's because, um, first of all, Renato, is am I, am I correct that any contribution, even a dollar, would be a violation, um, but it would only be a criminal violation if it exceeds uh, a $2,000 threshold Um, or 25,000 to be a felony. Is that correct? So otherwise, in other words, if you don't meet the monetary threshold and it's still just something, you could still be... Fine civilly or, or found in violation.
1: Right. Uh, certainly a, a contribution of even a dollar is a civil violation. But then you also, and you also obviously have the mental state requirements for a criminal case, knowing Wilson, Yeah. So. so
0: I just, I want to point out that the valuation piece is really relevant to the criminal standard uh, because you have to show that it, it goes beyond these thresholds. And on page 188 of the Mueller report, as you said, Renato, the, the problem that Mueller had here um, was that the, let's see what he says, um, that it was of uncertain worth because it was still speculative that it was offered. And when they showed up, there was nothing actually handed over and they actually use, uh, Don jr's words. If it's what you say, I love it as being kind of, he has, he doesn't know what it is yet. Um, And I think you're right that it could be different if there was actually something handed over that could then be looked at and evaluated as a concrete thing. Um, And here's where what Trump said, where he says, well, I'd have to look at it. I'd have to evaluate it first uh, to decide whether or not I wanna take it. So in some ways, if he were to do that, he is then getting something and in deciding to use it, which is what he says, it would clearly have some value at that moment, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas what happened in the Trump Tower meeting is that it was offered, they showed up, nothing was really given. um, And so, you know, that that piece of it still remained cloudy. But what Trump is saying, he's willing to go all the way. He's going to (laughs) take it. He's going to check it out. If it's if it's worth something, he's going to run with it, in which case, as you just said, he's kind of basically made the the criminal bar easier to meet, in my opinion, if you could, you know, figure out what, it, what exactly he ended up getting.
2: Another thing that's come up uh, in the questions is how likely is it that people in Trump's orbit are being surveilled as part of the CI investigation, particularly after his comments about alerting the FBI regarding accepting foreign oppo researched? And do you believe he already maybe it means he already has that information?
0: Are you asking whether they're under surveillance now? Yes. I doubt it. I mean, you know, the way, the way counterintelligence works um and I mean this would be from the counterintelligence angle and Bernardo can speak from the criminal angle is that you follow the activities of the foreign intelligence service. You're not actually targeting like that's what people seem to fail to understand. The people in Trump's campaign came under the ambit of this investigation, which was about Russia and Russia's intelligence officers, Russia's intelligence service, and what their activities were, because they were in contact with them. You know, if you don't want to be under investigation, like, don't talk to Russian spies. Like, it's not <laughs> that hard. And, um, but, you know, so I think that what they would be, what the FBI will be looking at very carefully will be the activities of these foreign states. And they will probably heighten that uh that vigilance as we get closer to the election to make sure to keep an eye on what these foreign countries are doing are they up to any shenanigans and yes if people in any campaign not just trumps start playing ball with them and they come on the radar of things that the fbi is already looking at then they should be on notice that they will get instared in that investigation and you know and i can just foresee it they're going to whine again and um, the way they're doing now but you know, too bad, so sad. You shouldn't be colluding.
1: One thing I would just note, with in, kind of in response to that as well, is that one thing that in and I'm happy to have it, for you to touch on this if you'd like is get, given all of the focus now, there's this you know thing that that Barr likes to call investigating the investigators or others in the right have been calling that. There's definitely a focus on. Um, concerns raised about investigating even for counterintelligence purpose the president or people associated with the president or, or campaign for president so I think at this point any counterintelligence investigation that involves Trump or an associate of Trump would be something that the attorney general would be very concerned about and I think would likely put the kibosh on what do you think Asha
0: yeah, bar bar may very well put the kibosh on. I I, am, I believe that in the normal course of business, um, it would not be an absolute bar. It would be it would require higher and higher levels of approval and scrutiny, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, First Amendment activity gets extra special protection in counterintelligence investigations. This is precisely because in the '60s and '70s, Hoover went to town, you know, doing internal counterintelligence on civil rights leaders and politicians and activists and all of those things. So there's a big bubble that's built into that um, where people cannot be investigated solely for First Amendment activity. And as you know, political activity gets the highest uh, level of protection um, in in that sphere. Having said that, um, you know, I don't think it's a de facto bar. I do think... um, you know the question is if if he were to do that, and I don't think there there is anything that triggers this, but you know the gang of eight um, is supposed to get briefed when uh u s persons are investigated solely because of to, to obtain foreign intelligence, which would be the case here um, and I'm not sure how that oversight function uh would work if Barr was internally stymieing these investigations or preventing them from moving forward. And you also have the FBI director, by the way, who would be in the know as well. So that is a potential whistleblower or somebody who could, you know, call it out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, he, the FBI director, Barr is still Ray's boss. Um, but I don't know. What's your impression, Renato? I mean, I think they're. They also have a certain. Equivalency too um in their respective spheres, I would think
1: I mean, I think that uh, I certainly think Christopher Ray is a um you know very respected person. I think he's someone who has uh, certainly some significant level of integrity um I don't know how we would approach this. I think that one thing that's happened is, and we I think we'll have to cover this topic in more detail a different uh, week. It, this this investigating the investigators theme that the right is built up largely, I think, to distract from the issues that Trump has. I think would really um, dissuade the FBI um, or other intelligence agencies, U.S. intelligence agencies, from investigating in the future potential. Um, uh, you know um contacts between a, the foreign power and a and a and a uh US presidential candidate and I'm concerned about that because I think that what that threat's going to go up and I think our intelligence agencies are going to be less equipped to do something about it.
0: Yeah and I just I would just say from a counterintelligence perspective that's it's just very hard to draw that line right because if you just make people who are in contact with foreign intelligence services off limits you are then preventing your own agency from understanding the full scope of what the foreign government is doing and potentially exposing the United States to very big national security risks. You know, because you're just like, okay, that's just our, that's a big black box. We're not going to look at it. And you're essentially letting the foreign government um, act uh, without any kind of neutralization or, or you know, counter force. So um, you, you, in other words, you cannot keep, get keep certain contacts off limits without also enabling the foreign adversary, uh, by definition. Um, and that's where I think you get the problem. I also think that a lot of this would be under Ray's, uh, purview unless and until it's, they began using techniques that would require the attorney general's approval. Um, so intrusive techniques, but I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, probably internally he would still brief him, but
1: I think you would. It's interesting. I don't disagree with uh, your pol- the sort of the the policy points you're making. I just uh, I'm really trying to report what I see to be the political reality of the situation, for better or for worse.
0: Yeah. No. It's really sad. It's it's sad, and it should be scary to people. And I think that you know, it, I think that the fact that this these are intelligence services somehow people don't truly understand um, the level of risk. Like just just replace uh, intelligence services with terrorist organizations. Imagine that there were members of the campaign, like, you know, making contact with, with international terrorist organizations and getting information from them, even if it's just information to help their candidacy, uh, you know, so that, I don't know, they're going to get some benefit from it later on. Um, And imagine that we're sitting here talking about, well, you know, I think the FBI and, and Barr would stop, you know, investigators from looking into it too closely because it just becomes too politically uh, explosive. And Matt, I mean, just think about that. What if that's what we were saying? We're going to let terrorists just kind of, uh, you know, have free reign. That would be crazy. Um, and it should be equally as crazy when we're talking about uh, foreign intelligence services who are equally up to no good.
2: But that's the concern that people have. One of the listeners asked, can the FBI launch an investigation into foreign meddling in our elections or into a possible collusion with foreign agents or governments without the OK from the attorney general?
0: Yeah, that's where where uh, Bernardo and I are right now. I mean, you know, Crossfire Hurricane was a special Quote unquote. So a special is a case that is run out of FBI headquarters and either it's because it has you know particular uh, sensitivity, or it encompasses, you know, so many different field offices that it needs to be coordinated out of headquarters. So Pent Bomb after 9-11 was a special that was run out of headquarters because, you know, you just had every field office in the country running down leads and they want to keep everything organized under one big umbrella case. Um, Crossfire Hurricane, I suspect, was a special because of the sensitive nature. So, um I think now thinking through it, yes, the attorney general will be briefed. It would probably be run out of headquarters. And um, I think in the situation that we're in now, I think Renato's right that it would probably get crushed.
2: Another question is, uh, now that Mueller is done, who owns making robust fixes to minimize Russian meddling in 2020? The executive branch? Because Trump has no motive. Congress, you know, the Senate is stonewalling. The states, all 50 states are not up to it and the public loses confidence in election processes if the fixes are not not broadly advertised? So I think it
0: belongs to both uh, the executive branch and Congress and the states. So in terms of election infrastructure, that is up to the states. Um, That's determined by the states. They choose, you know, the machines and methods of voting. Um, I believe that you know, they can get assistance from the Department of Homeland Security in terms of, you know, checking out their infrastructure and, and figuring out what they need. But those decisions have to be made at the state level. And I think the state of Georgia has been sued because of their election infrastructure. Um and and there might be other lawsuits in other states as well. Um, Congress can do some of the things that they've been trying to do. Um, for example, make it clearly illegal to get foreign, you know, assistance. Um, and Renata, you can probably think of some other laws that they could pass um, as well to make things, uh, you know, to criminalize some things or 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 whatever. Um, And then in terms of the intelligence agencies taking action, that has to come from uh, the National Security Council and the president. They have to, in in terms of taking um, any kind of offensive action you know or or really some coordinated strategy beyond what they're doing right now which is intelligence collection they're going to continue doing that FBI is going to continue investigating but in terms of acting on that with some kind of operation or policy or strategy uh, that has to come from the top and that is very unlikely to happen
1: great questions uh this week and i have to say that it kind of re- i think it reflects two things one is some of the confusion about this area, I mean, what I will mention to folks, make sure that everyone understands, even though there's been a lot of focus on campaign finance crime, we've d- d- done a number of episodes about it. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion in the public. Campaign finance uh, is very rarely criminally charged. It's a very complicated area of the law. It's an area where you, you have very sophisticated defendants uh, who are going to put up quite a fight, and it's, I think, an area where um, it can be challenging for the government to get a conviction uh, because um, the um, the law is very difficult to understand and there's a willfulness requirement. Um, in addition, um, I think people are rightfully concerned about Russian ev- uh, efforts to attack our elections, and they're worried about what will happen uh, in the future. And I think if you aren't concerned about that, you're not paying attention because – the Robert Mueller found that Russia interfered in the elections for the purpose of helping Donald Trump become the president. And he now that he is president, he is, I think, encouraging other foreign powers to do the same thing.
0: Renato, can I ask you one last question as we wrap up? Sure. Uh, how does, um, you know, if, if we're working on the theory that countries are giving assistance in exchange for something— Later, how tight would that nexus have to be in terms of the quid pro quo that might be understood to be there for it to constitute a criminal offense, whether it's bribery or something else?
1: Well, bribery it's got to be pretty much a quid pro quo, so there has to be um, something, some in exchange of something of value for an official activity. Okay, whether you, it's bribery or theft of honest services or something like that. And then um, as to the campaign finance violation, I think we've discussed that at length. Um, but there, the knowledge would have to be that it's from a foreign entity. So I think foreign powers now know because uh, they're all sophisticated people. I mean, already the Russians, I think, took great efforts to have... A, to have know,
0: cutouts and intermediaries.
1: Exactly, which you've talked about at length. Uh, Asha, I learned a lot about that from you know talking to you about those subjects. So they put had a kind of... A, uh, buffer between them and and the uh, someone they could pl- have a plausible what's called plausible deniability they could deny uh, that they were directly involved and so I think they know now they're smart uh, they're smart and they're paying attention to this they know to make sure that the other person ke- isn't quite sure where it's coming from there's somebody who appears to be an American who is offering you dirt and you don't know where it's from and so you can say well I didn't know and I think. Um, we we should be concerned, and I think what a lot of you may be wondering at home is like, what can we do? What should we do? And in my mind, the answer to this um, is the answer to how you combat um, a lot of white collar crime and sophisticated crime more generally. And sometime someday I'll write more about it, but essentially it's it's passing laws that have a a mental state that's easier to prove. And the balance there, of course, is that we don't want to pass laws that ensnare innocent people uh, or even result in charges against innocent people and ruin their lives. But we have law, you know, you could have, whether it's a strict liability misdemeanor or heavy fines for misdemeanors where there's things that are unlawful but they're not criminal um, or that they don't result in a prison sentence but they are misdemeanors. Or you could potentially have, um, you know, a mental state that isn't necessarily knowingly or willfully but is very circumscribed but makes it crystal clear that when you do a certain thing and that may be a subset of things we're talking about, in other words, you may solve the issue that the person doesn't know it's from a foreigner or whatever, but um, that's a more narrowly focused thing that nonetheless would be easier if it, if those facts are there for a prosecutor to prove.
0: I would say also it it would be worth putting focus on your state's understanding what they are doing to secure their election infrastructure. You know, we're now uh, 15 or whatever, 17 months out. Um, And because, you know, ultimately what is going to matter is not only people voting in overwhelming numbers, but for those uh, results to be counted and legitimate and secure and certified by every state so that, um, you know, it's, it's airtight and doesn't give any basis to, to contest and create all kinds of other drama and nonsense, um, which, you know, would be in the interest of a lot of foreign governments to happen. so, um, You know, I think we often ignore the role of the states in our elections um, and how important they are and how they can be a a bulwark against uh, interference because of its decentralization. Um, But it's really up to each of us to be good citizens of our state and make sure that we're holding our state officials accountable for that, too.
1: It's a great point. Our elections are really um, conducted at a state and local level. So if you're not paying attention to how uh, counties and states are handling elections and how, whether or not their, uh, infrastructure is secure, um, then, um, you're not doing your job as a citizen because we have to make sure we hold them accountable and make sure that your elections are secure. So Asha, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fantastic as always. Great conversation. Yeah.
0: I always love being on with you and having these discussions.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay On Topic.